Lord Almighty, thank you for bringing us into your presence today. God, I pray that you would meet us here. I pray that you would remove from us those things that would distract us from you and from your word. And Lord, bring us into your presence. Help us, Lord, as we look at your word to know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The most wicked nation in history was marching right at God's people. You think COVID is bad. We're talking whole cities reduced to rubble. Entire populations, not just wiped out, but tortured to death. The end of the world as we know it, literally. So, Habakkuk, one of the few who saw God's judgment coming on his people, on the nation he loves, cried out, Lord, help us. And Yahweh responded, yep, judgment is coming, and I'm sending it. But God, Habakkuk replied, these people are worse than we are. Yep, and I'll take care of them too. But what you need to know is that my people have not trusted me. My people have not feared me. So, justice. By the way, I am not saying that COVID is God's justice. I am saying that this COVID crisis is meant to call us to repent exactly like the tragedies Jesus addressed in Luke 13. And this small prophecy of Habakkuk is remarkable. It's remarkable because it opens our eyes to a vision of God that we do not like in our modern context. We like a God who will help our favorite sports team win, or I guess even have our favorite sports team play at all this season. We like a God who will make sure that we get our toys or change our circumstances or give us the relationships that we covet. Habakkuk God is not that God. Habakkuk's God is one to be feared. Feared. Because if you find yourself in a wrong relationship to Yahweh, you will find yourself on the wrong side of the Babylonian army looking to pillage and plunder and destroy. Now, does God expect to be feared? Well, evidently Jesus thought so in Luke chapter 12. He says, but I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you. Fear him. But as with many topics in the Bible, the truth, the reality can only be seen through the eyes of faith. The world cannot even conceive of the fear of the Lord in any other category than ridiculous infantile religion or abject fear. Perhaps they're not very far off in the latter. But the Bible sees the fear of the Lord as a good thing, as something wonderful. The fear of the Lord is searching for treasure more valuable than a stable economy or a healthy family. Look with me at Isaiah 33, 6. He will be the sure foundation of your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. 
And the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. God offers unimaginable treasure quite apart from health or wealth. And this treasure has a key. What is this key? It's this. Don't want something more than you want to be right with God. Don't want anything more than you want to be right with God. Don't value stuff or circumstances or relationships more than being right with God. The fear of the Lord, for the one who trusts God's promises, does not mean being afraid. It means paying attention to the most important person in the room. Now you know this. People are afraid of things that are mean or arbitrary or simply unknown. God is not mean like a vicious dog. God is not arbitrary like a terrorist with a bomb. God is not unknown. It gives God great pleasure to make himself known to all his children. The fear of the Lord is like the fear of uranium. Uranium is not mean. It won't jump out and bite you. Uranium is not arbitrary. It always behaves the same way. And uranium is not unknown. God has given us much knowledge about such things. But if you are in a wrong relationship to uranium, you are in a bad place. Steve was a friend of mine in seminary. And before he decided to become a pastor, he was a nuclear engineer at a power plant in Pennsylvania. And he told me about a story of a man who was in the early days of nuclear power in Korea. And he was moving things around with a hollow pole. There was 10 feet of water between him and that uranium. And at one point, he moved his pole, waved his pole right in front of his forehead, and he died instantly. Because he put himself into a wrong relationship to that uranium. There was nothing but 10 feet of air between him and that radioactivity. God has given us a warning system. He's given us our conscience, which acts like a Geiger counter so that we will know when we are too close to sin. And he warns us of the deadly effects of sin because just as uranium will take us out of this life, sin will take us out of eternal life. The fear of the Lord is always keeping our focus on God because he is the only thing we really need to pay attention to. We have nothing to fear when our eyes are focused on him. We have everything to fear when they are not. Now, at this point of the sermon is where most preachers, if they're willing to talk about the fear of the Lord at all, will say something like, the fear of the Lord means reverence. Yeah, but I don't know what that means. Fear, I understand. And because in both the Greek and the Hebrew, the word is fear, I suggest we continue to use the word that the Lion of Judah used. Allow me another image. When we lived in Santa Barbara, I took the boys often on Friday mornings to the Santa Barbara Zoo. And my favorite exhibit was always the lion's den. Quite often, one of the two lady occupants would be sitting on a branch just a few feet away from the window my boys would lean on. I would stand back and I would 
picture myself three feet in front of where I was at that moment. And I would try to imagine what would be the emotions I would have. Because a wrong relationship to that lioness would mean death. A wrong relationship to the lion of Judah means second death. Have a right relationship to Yahweh. Fear the Lord rightly. Now, having said that and wanting to get to the point of the 10th commandment, let's go to the passage where I think we will see an unpacking, where we will see Paul explaining what the fear of the Lord might look like for believers. What does a person who wants to be right with the Lion of Judah today do? I think Paul might say Colossians 3, 1 through 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So what do we find? Number one, seek the things of Christ. Pay attention to the things of Christ. Number two, set your minds on things of eternal value. I mean, how much of our energy is spent looking at stuff we really only want so that we'll impress our neighbors or scratch an itch? Number three, Paul tells us our old life is gone. <laughs> Can I hear an amen on that? Now, for Christ is your life. Life is found, seriously, and only. Life is found in living for him. So Paul tells us to kill everything that hinders your life with God. Put your coveting of stuff and circumstances and relationship to death. Now, many of you are sitting there thinking, those of us who know our Bible, may our tribe increase. Some of you will say at this point, let's turn to another passage so that we can downplay this idea of the need to fear the Lord. Some of us will want to turn to 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Yes and amen. Agreed. But I don't think this verse solves our problem with the Babylonians or with Jesus' warning not to be on the wrong side of the glass from the Lion of Judah. Instead, what this passage does is it flips our perception. We don't want to be on the outside of the glass. We want to be next to the Lion. Right next to God. And a right relationship to the Lion of Judah is in Jesus' embrace. Anywhere else is too dangerous even to contemplate. Don't want something more than you want to be right with God. Don't want anything more than you want to be right with God. 
Snuggle up between the paws of the Lion of Judah. The closer you are to Him, the more focused you are on Him, the more you fix your eyes upon Jesus, the more you will find that the things you don't need will grow strangely dim. Now, as I've noted many times during our series on the Ten Commandments, we are saved by the wood and we are taught by the stone. You are not saved by avoiding coveting. You are not saved by following the law. You are saved by trusting the promises won at the cross. But we go to the Ten Commandments because we want to know what it looks like to live between the paws of the Lion of Judah. And so, in light of the new covenant, we want to live in a right relationship to Him. Focusing on Him instead of anything or everything else. So now, we come to an end of our series. And I want to draw our attention to both the first and the last commandment. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 says this, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what did we learn? We learned to worship the right God. Make sure that you are in a right relationship to the real God and not some figment of your imagination. And today we come to verse 17. And verse 17 tells us, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. So what do we see? Worship the right God. Make sure you are in a right relationship to the real God and not some figment of your imagination. It is not too much to say that these two commandments are different ways of pointing at the same reality. Have no other gods. Don't make any thing or circumstance or relationship a false god you worship. And straight up on the face of it, Yahweh does not want us to covet our neighbor's stuff. Clearly so. It is just a matter, is it then just a matter of not wanting what our friends have? No. The command is that we would not want what our neighbors have more than we want to be good neighbors. We want to see our neighbors as persons, not as a source of stuff. Here's a good rule of thumb. People are always ends, never means. And things are always means, never ends. What it is we want to accomplish is blessing the people around us. And so what we use is stuff, not people. People are never to be used to accomplish something merely. Now, I will tell you, I have a great mechanic for my vehicles. I trust him and I want to pay him fairly for what he does. Kelly is not a means to an end merely. Now, I do want him to fix my car. And I want to treat him as a human being who deserves to be treated with respect. You would expect that of anybody. So while someone is serving you, do you see that person as someone that you also serve? 
Even if you're only serving them briefly by being kind while they take their life into their hands by bagging your groceries. You owe them that at least. People are to be seen as valuable in and of themselves, whereas stuff must be seen as what we use to accomplish the ends, which is blessing them in the name of Christ. And that blessing must ultimately always point them towards loving God and loving those God puts near you. And so loving stuff more than people will become absurd. And this gets to the heart of why Paul tells us that coveting is idolatry. Look back at verse 5 again in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I have a question. Are Christians against sexual immorality because they can't get any? Or are Christians against sexual immorality because it always treats people as means and not as ends? Are we against these things because we know that they make us covet? They make us idolaters. An idol, if you remember, is something we depend upon for provision, protection, or purpose. If we escape the Lion of Judah's paws to to rely on our bank account or our good looks or our survivalistic plan to conquer pandemics, then what we will find is that whatever it is we're depending upon is an idol. Our food, our ammo, our 401k. My friends, God has a way of destroying these idols. Don't tempt him. And make no mistake, the Ten Commandments begin and end in the same place. Worship the right God. And Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. John Piper, commenting on this verse, says this. How does a person serve money? He does not assist money. He is not the benefactor of money. How then do we serve money? Money exerts a certain control over us because it seems to hold out so much promise of happiness. It whispers with great force, think and act so as to get into a position to enjoy my benefits. Now this might include stealing or borrowing or working. But see, money promises happiness and we serve it by believing the promise and walking by that faith. So we don't serve money by putting our power at its disposal for good. We serve money by doing what is necessary so that money's power will be at our disposal for our good. And my friends, this gets straight at the heart of coveting. Money is the thing we covet most because it promises all the provision, protection, and purpose we long to have. I mean, we even call it the almighty dollar. But it's a lie. And when we 
by faith see this lie when our eyes our faith are open to the reality of the universe as it really is then and only then can we finally be free to be content don't want something more than you want to be right with God don't want anything more than you want to be right with God Well, how does this work? What does this look like in real life? Let's start with stuff. We all need toilet paper, for example. Believe me, I have a seven-year-old little girl. We all need stuff. The harm comes when we rely on our own abilities to get that stuff as opposed to focusing on Jesus and when we believe we will be safe and secure if we only had that stuff. But how many of us know that stuff can disappear in a moment? So value God more than everything. How about circumstances? We all want to have easier or richer or healthier circumstances. Are you chasing after these circumstances while resenting God for not giving them to you? Are you blaming God for what very well may be your sins that is keeping you from what you want? Desire God more than anything. How about relationships? We all want better relationships. But are you willing to do or say or believe something you know to be wrong in order to get a relationship? My friends, 22 years in the pastor's office has taught me the personal tragedies from this kind of coveting are cliché. Trust God more than everyone. So then what? How do we escape the trap of coveting and pursue growth in contentment? Well, I got an idea. How about memorizing verses? You can go old school and get three by five cards with verses on them and put them in your pocket so that your mind will focus on God and his word instead of whatever you're coveting. You can go new school and carry an app on your phone so that you can get virtual happy faces to reward your diligence. But then you have to ask, well, where do I start? How about promises? Memorize promises so that you can know and trust and bet your life on the promises of God for you in Christ. How about Psalm 84.1? For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. How do we know this? We know it because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How about Philippians 4.19? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Or my personal favorite, Hebrews 13.5 and 6, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear. What on earth can man do to me? These are promises you can memorize. These are promises you can memorize so that you will not want something more than you want to be right 
with God. Don't want something more than you want to be right with God. Now we looked a few minutes ago at 1 John 4, 18 and 19, which said, perfect love casts out fear. And I noted that the safest place in the universe is between the front paws of the Lion of Judah. We see there that love conquers fear because when you are in a right relationship to the lion that can do more than eat you, but then can also cast you into hell, when you are in a right relationship to him, you have no reason to fear. And interestingly, the very next verses of that passage help me make my point even more about the tie between the fear of the Lord and coveting. The very next verse, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. First of all, having a right view of God cures coveting. And secondly, having a right love of people cures coveting. Because if you make people a means for you to accomplish whatever goal you have or get whatever stuff you want, you are hating them. And you cannot at the same time love God. You cannot at the same time rest comfortably in the front paws of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Instead, viewing stuff as a means to bless others and to be God's gracious provision to give them hope in the midst of this COVID crisis or whatever personal crisis they are enduring at the moment. Giving them hope is far more important than the majority of things that middle-class Americans covet. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Conspire to be the neighbor that shows them that Jesus is better than stuff. Fear being in a wrong relationship to him so that you and they will be able to be in the safest place in the universe. Allow me to put this same idea differently so you can see where God the Spirit may be leading you. The opposite of coveting is contentment. Now, in 1964, the United States Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart was searching for a way to describe obscenity. And he came up with the phrase that our culture has used since for many things. He said, I know it when I see it. Contentment is like that. We know it when we see it. Now, Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now that is true. It's also a mouthful. And we know contentment when we see it. So test yourself with some questions. When you desire something, some circumstance or some relationship, are you content Number one, are you willing to trust God to give this thing to you in his timing? Or are you chafing and ruining relationships around you because you can't get your way? Number two, are you willing to use lawful means, as Burroughs would say? Are you willing to work with your hands or on your knees before the throne of grace? 
Number three, are you willing to allow bitterness and hopelessness to corrupt your relationships while you pursue whatever it is you desire? Remembering God's promises as you struggle through this life of not getting everything you want. Remembering God's promises as you struggle will help you find the grace you need to defeat coveting in your life. Back to the Babylonians. In one of the absolute worst situations that has ever happened to any people group in history, Habakkuk, through a very difficult and prolonged interview with God, gained a right understanding of who God is and how he works. And he was therefore cured of coveting. Look at the very last verses of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3, 16 through 18. He heard this judgment coming. He heard the terrible things that were going to happen. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Though he loses everything, the flock will be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice between the paws of the lion of Judah. What do I need? A great 401k, a beautiful house, a perfect life? No. What I need is joy in the God of my salvation. Everything else is secondary. So don't want something more than you want to be right with God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is impossible. We cannot do this of our own. We cannot look rightly at the things of this earth. Instead, we depend upon God the Spirit to come and invade us and change us and mold us and make us to be the men and women of God you want us to be. Help us, Lord Jesus to know you better so that we will therefore love you and trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.